welcome to Knock On Podcast, where we bring you archery information and education that you can trust. Knock On was created as a way to bring all archers together, regardless of the brand you choose or the style of archery you shoot. Knock On Podcasting will deliver professional insights to the latest gear, proper shooting technique, along with high-level equipment setup and tuning. Hey everybody, welcome back to another Knock On Podcast. I told you I'd be getting back on here quick like, and uh, I did it. I know that there's a lot of you out there hitting the road hard as truckers, some faithful archery addicts. There's probably even some of you out there in Maryland sitting around eating some blue crabs with Old Bay on it, listening to a knock-on podcast. So I need to uh, cover the masses here and make sure I'm hitting all you guys. Uh, It's a pretty exciting time of year. Even though elk season is kind of wrapping up for some of us, myself included, it's uh, the time of year where whitetails are about to get going. And then also, right about the time whitetail season gets going really, really good, that is when the new bows start hitting the market. And it's also right about the time we start getting ready for indoor season. Uh, which I'm super excited about. I know that there's going to be some really, really cool bows coming into the target world this year. I know there's some cool new arrows coming. This is going to be really, really exciting. Plus, obviously, I've got some new releases and some new training methods I'm going to put out there for all of you right about the time that hits as well. So I'm pretty jacked. But uh, we've got Several questions still coming in. Obviously, I'm probably, after today's podcast, should probably only have maybe 8,000 questions that I haven't quite got to yet on my social media pages. So if you're in that line, I'm sorry, but I will get to it. Best of luck to everyone out in um, at the World Field Championships. World Field or Field Archery has kind of got a special place with me. It's definitely my favorite format of archery. And if you're not into competitive archery, I can tell you right now that field archery is the one type of archery that will completely elevate your game and really start to educate you on the ballistics of archery, uh, meaning drop, angles, wind drift, Um, how to shoot on angles, and it'll also really start to build your knowledge of your personal archer equipment and your bow and, you know, how those things perform because aiming at those four, four targets, 20, 40, 60, and 80 centimeter faces, man, they test your skill and, uh, best of luck to everyone out there, um, kind of pulling, for my buddy Chris White. I guess that's selfishly pulling for him, but you know, I guess it was I'm trying to think here. Well, I was going to say it was 10 years ago now, but I guess it was 12 years ago now that Chris and I were in the gold medal match together. Um, so it's kind of, I thought it was 10 years. I thought it was kind of a cool decade. Um, reunion there where maybe Chris could get that gold medal again. I know there's a lot of you out there I'm rooting for, but kind of 
enjoying seeing Chris still get after it, even at our age. I don't know if he's got gray hair yet, but I do. Um, so let's see. We're going to jump into a couple different questions. These questions kind of bounce around. Some of them actually came to me from Sharon, people that sent some stuff in um, to Sharon. And they ended up getting in front of me here. And then also I've got some that I uh, just kind of screenshot from one of my social media pages. I'm not quite sure what they said, but I just saw their questions and thought we'd jump in on that. Um, <clears throat> first and foremost, though, I want to talk about I've had a few people talking to me that are shooting a thumb release for the very first time and specifically... <coughs> They got a knock to it release and they were kind of had questions on how to actually set that release. And then some people have actually uh, had kind of a premature firing while they're drawing the bow back. And I want to talk about this because there's a few things. One, on any thumb release, if you're wanting to adjust the actual pressure of how much pressure it takes to fire that release, um, that's not only done with that small little screw that goes through the actual metal lever of the trigger. That set screw is a travel adjustment set screw. So when some people turn that set screw until it gets very, very light to fire, you're actually putting that trigger extremely on the edge of firing. You're taking all the travel out of that trigger so that it's really sitting on the edge to fire. And that can be, well, it can be potentially dangerous. Um, what you want to do and what's cool and unique about the Carters is... There's a set screw that goes in the top of the green part of the casing. That set screw that's up there is the tension screw that actually compresses a little spring inside of the release. And how much that spring inside there is compressed will determine how light or how heavy your trigger is. And once again, that other set screw that goes through the silver part of the actual trigger lever, lever itself, that is the travel screw. So what you want to do is when you cock your release, you want to put a little Allen screw or Allen wrench in the back of that set screw that's on the silver part of the, the lever, and you turn it until it fires. And when that release fires on its own you need to back that set screw back about probably about 45 degrees to be safe so if when you're turning that screw if you get to 12 o'clock and it fires you should almost back that set screw back to about nine o'clock because that's going to make sure that your sears aren't sitting exactly on the edge if you're wanting your trigger a little stiffer, then what you should do is you actually, on the side of the casing, you loosen a little set screw, and then on the top of the green casing, if you want it stiffer, you'll tighten that big set screw down into the 
thing and it compresses that string spring it makes it stiffer or if you want it lighter you back it out just a little bit a little bit goes a long way and then from there you'll cock the release and go through that travel adjustment that I just talked about where you tighten the set the allen wrench until it fires and then back it back about 45 degrees what that does is it makes sure that you have no travel in the release because you don't want travel in the trigger because your brain will pick up on that. You don't want the travel. You just want the pressure. So that's how you set that up. The other thing is on the knock to it, it does have an auto-closing jaw. So when you cock the back of the release, the jaw automatically closes. It's going to be important that you make sure when you're putting the release around your D loop, you want to make sure that that D loop is completely inside of that jaw when you cock it. Because if the if the D loop is slightly on that jaw when you cock it, the jaw won't fully close. You're actually clamping it down on that material and it can cock even though it has some of that D loop pinched in there and that can cause it to pull through as you're doing it so you have to make sure you push the D loop inside of the jaw and when you cock it you want to make sure that that the jaw closes free and clear around the inside of that loop and honestly that goes for really any type of release aid handheld release aid Um, same would be true like on a caliper release too you always want to make sure that the D loop is perfectly inside of those jaws so that they close free and clear and they're not pinching on that if it pinches on it while they're closing sometimes those sears won't activate so those are some precautionary things for all of you first timers out there with handheld release aids Um, it's definitely going to help prevent you from having any premature fires the other thing too is when you draw back a handheld release don't draw it back with your thumb even close to that firing trigger I like to take my thumb and actually go underneath the trigger and connect it to my index finger as I draw back. And then once I'm at full draw and I'm anchored and my pin safely on the target, then I'll let my thumb off of my index finger and move it straight up to the trigger that's on the release. Uh, If you do it that way, you're going to be in good shape. I actually think there's a few different questions today about release aids, so maybe this was a pretty good way to start. Um, I'm pretty jacked, too, about uh, this weekend. Whitetail season is opening up. Um, I've actually got stealth cams out in a couple different states. Um, My buddy Ben, who was talking to me about having the mobile uh the mobile stealth cams where you got the little sim cards in there you can pay like five bucks a month and you got a a camera that just texts photos right to your camera um or right to your phone it's pretty pretty awesome because when you have a lease or you have a place where you know say you have a a place where you're going to go hunt later in the year you know i've got places where I've got buddies that have properties that just let me go and hunt. Um, I actually just made a trip and kind of made a big little loop and put one camera out in each of those spots. And, 
you know, put them on kind of major trails or in one place I actually put them on a food plot. And I got a picture of a really cool buck that's been coming to this food plot um, pretty regular here. And I'm going to, I'm actually going to try to see if I can strike uh, on my first, on the opening weekend here. I've done really well during the opening weekends um, for many, many states over the years. And if you want to be successful as a whitetail hunter, you really have to take advantage of doing your homework during this early part of the season because we really have about two weeks here where these mature bucks will still be somewhat patternable. Uh, green plots are really, really good right now, and actually we're at a very good uh, moon phase right now. The moon is starting to go dark again, so you're going to have some good movement um, here during this evening. So... I'm actually going to just make a prediction that I'm going to probably see a good buck or have a, a pretty good opportunity here this opening weekend. And I think a lot of us will because very good moon phase. Um, I'm actually going to focus on uh, a green plot here. And the other thing too, a good buddy of mine asked me just the other day, he's got pictures of a buck that has been coming to the same spot in the morning and in the evening so he kind of asked the question do you think i'm okay to try him on the morning hunt because he is there every morning and he's in the same position that i am with this buck that i just got this picture of or have been getting pictures of for the last few weeks this buck has also been showing up through the same area in the morning as well but what i'm gonna do is i'm actually gonna not go anywhere near that for the opening morning i'm going to let that buck do its normal pattern and also let him bed down wherever he's bedding down uh in a normal pattern and i'm going to go in there and actually make my first hunt in the evening so that i'm not going in there in the dark and you know maybe somewhat alternating altering a pattern that i can't physically see if you go in there i think during the early part of the afternoon during that first evening I think you're going to be in really good shape and that's kind of my strategy if you're not able to scout something enough for deer to where you know your morning hunt where you know you have an in route and an out route to where you won't alter the bedding um, of your deer then if you know you don't have that I would definitely say just either hunt somewhere else during that particular hunt and save the evening to strike um, or I guess try to find a route where you can get in or out or try to find an interception point to where you're able to intercept but not be too close to that bedding and as of right now I really don't know how close that buck is bedding to that area so I'm going to just kind of write it down for knowledge to burn that first morning hunt and maybe glass it from a few miles away and try to learn something uh, rather than mess something up but i'm getting excited okay so i'm going to jump on this first question here uh, it's actually from kevin saladin um, says in one of your podcasts 64 i think you mentioned three ways to fix a high knock tear one of the ways was to set the top cam 
one setting higher on the module and then retime the cams. Will this hurt the bow in any way? Because the Hoyt manual says to not have the cams in different positions. I've been battling this problem and have found an one inch, one eighth inch low knock will get me a bullet hole, but my groups will be larger and inconsistent in that setting. I will change the string in the off season to see if that helps, but didn't want to avoid the warranty by adjusting the cams in different positions. Thanks in advance. So Kevin, um, yeah, just to go back, we did talk about several ways. Um, I think some of the more common tears this these last few years, to be honest with you, in the archery industry as a whole, the most common tears are these high and low tears that people can't get rid of. And these can be um, from a number of things. And actually yesterday, <clears throat> believe it or not, I posted a couple pictures of some bows that I had tuned, uh, or some, I guess some bullet holes through paper. And yesterday I actually set up nine bows, a bunch of people that, uh, I agree to do favors for and build their bows. Everybody's well, not everybody, but a lot of my friends are like most people procrastinate. They're trying to get a bow set up right before the rut comes. And, you know, I've been traveling and hunting and I just try to go off the grid for a month and enjoy my life as a bow hunter uh, without having to deal with my cell phone. And I got back and just had a pile of bows to work on for close friends. And some bows had certain issues. Um, my left and right, there's a few bows where I had left and right tears that as I would adjust the rest, the tear would stay exactly the same. And you know, on one of the bows, I actually found that the fletching that he had on his arrow was contacting the actual containment cage on his arrow rest. So I had to take a snipper and actually cut that cage so that there wasn't a cage to contact his back vein. And it was so slight. I mean, it was minor, minor, minor. And as soon as I did that, it went to shooting perfect holes through paper. Um, another bow, I had a slight right or left tear. I made an adjustment to the rest. The tear stayed the exact same. So I knew that it wasn't necessarily related to the position of the rest. This obviously, if you move the rest and your tear stays the same through paper, it's an identifier that you're having contact or you're having something within the bow system itself that is not allowing that arrow to have perfect flight. So what I did there was I immediately started to just um, yoke tune. So I had a, I think I had a tear that was to the right. Um, so what I did was I actually added twist to the top left yoke um, so that I moved the, the top cam I move the top of the cam slightly to the left. The bottom of the cam slightly to the right is what happens when you put twists on that left side. And I immediately just got the perfect hole I wanted through paper without even having to adjust the rest anymore at all. So um, that was on that case. I think I had another case where, and a lot of this is because people want to change out their strings and cables 
um, you know, for a custom set. So when you do that, you always, and you put a string and cable on, you always have to balance that top wheel on a lot of bows. Um, so adjusting, and that's why I like actually having a split yoke system that goes to that top cam, because I really like the ability to be able to lean that cam in a direction that gives you the right arrow flight. The other thing too is some rests, um, especially certain fallaways that you can't adjust the speed that the rest goes down or some of the older style fallaway rests that attach to the cables with these newer bows they're just not getting out of the way fast enough well two things either they're not getting out of the way fast enough or they're going down and they actually because they go down and there's not a proper way for them to stop they actually hit and bounce back up either one of those two scenarios either it's not going down fast enough or it's going down and bouncing either of those gives you a high tear through paper even when you continue to move your arrow rest and you end up having to move it a lot in order to get rid of that high tear so in this situation here you know if you're having to move your rest into that position that you're talking about I'm not for sure it's actually maybe not one of these two issues that I'm talking about where you're actually getting bounce back or it just maybe isn't clearing enough. So you're ending up having to move it so far in one direction that you actually just start to, in one way, the paradox of the arrow starts to avoid that problem rather than actually correcting the problem. So I can tell you on some arrow rests, where I've had those high tears and some of that too, you know, make sure you're, you have perfect vein clearance. Um, when I knock my arrows, I, when I look down the back of my string on almost all of my bows right now with my newer style Hoyts, which have a flexible cable rod. And I know that a lot of bows now do to get proper clearance with your fletchings. When I look down the back of my string, I like my cock vein sitting at one o'clock so it's one o'clock on the right edge of that string when i look directly down the back of my bow and what that does is it's it's not perfectly my cock vein is not perfectly pointed out like it would if you shot a recurve or an old flipper rest but it's kind of my cock vein is almost sitting more um more at about like 10 o'clock or so and what that does is it's giving me perfect clearance on the inside of my cables but it's also giving me good clearance to where i'm not having one vein pointing down to where it's hitting that fall away rest and then making that that high tear come through paper um, that's been really really helping me a lot the other thing too is um, if you're battling with having like um a left tear some people are struggling with left tears um, or I've also heard people struggling with right tears you can change tears really easy with grip position and I mentioned this uh, before but what I found on my particular Hoyts with the grip that I really like to the way I like to grab my bow um, I actually have found that I can get better tears and better consistency 
um, without the stockwood grip. And that's just, maybe it's the size of my hands, but I know that the plastic grip that has the Hoyt Deer logo on the back of it, I really like that grip because it's flat on the back. Someone with bigger hands, it seats really nice. Um, also, I've shot that one quite a bit. Also, I really like side plates. The side plates have allowed me to get the perfect left and right setup on my bows to where when I look down the top of my bow, my arrow shafts are running right dead through the tiller bolts um, and just right down the pipe of my bow. Um, I actually just set up a new bow yesterday. Same thing. Perfect tune. And I'm using, um, I actually am using uh, the Rattler Grips by my buddy Rob. Um, not a sponsor, by the way. Uh, but yeah, Rob is down in Texas. Super cool dude. And if you want one of those Rattler Grips, he's making some um, in some really cool knock-on green colors. And he'll put the knock-on logo on there for you, too. Um, it's nothing I sell here. He he makes them, and I don't know how many he really does, but um, I'll just give Rob a shout out because I like him. Uh, his phone number is nine seven nine three two zero four six three two. He's got some really cool grips. I'll uh, post a pic of mine that I've got, and that really has helped my left and rights a ton. Um, but other than that, your vein indexing is a huge thing. Um, and I guess the bulk of Kevin's question, does it, is it going to hurt the bow? Absolutely not. It's not going to hurt your bow at all, man. You don't have to worry about it. Hoyt's more worried about people not getting tunes correctly because they have their cams in incorrect positions. And a lot of times when they put them in those wrong positions, they're not re-timing their bow or re-syncing their bow to where the cams are stopping at the same times. So you shouldn't have to worry about it. Um, it should be all good. The other thing too is on arrow rests for these high tears, rests that are bouncing up. Um, that's why even though I hated to admit it, several years ago I went to a limb-driven fallaway rest. Um, I really like a limb-driven system. Even though I had my doubts about having this long string go to the limb and I were worried about, you know, going through brush and fighting through, you know, the, the everyday rigmaroles of, uh, being a hunter and fighting through all kinds of thick, gnarly stuff. I can just tell you that that fall away, uh, system that is pulled down rather than, um, allowed to, you know, the one that's pulled down while the bow's at rest and comes up when the limbs naturally bend and then drives down when the limbs go straight again, that's just such an awesome system because it's so repetitive and so much more consistent um, than going to the cable. The other thing too is when you go directly to the cable with any type of system, that tension that you put on the cable can sometimes change your synchronization on your cams. For example, um, some shops will synchronize your cams and then they go to put the rest on there and they'll attach that cord to the to the power cable 
and they don't realize it, but when you attach that cord and it's pulling on that power cable, it'll actually, because you're pulling it, it's almost like shortening it, it'll slightly change your synchronization again. So, you know, it gets to be a little bit more of a pain when you go directly to the cable. Um, I actually built, um, I built six bows yesterday with the that new AAE Pro Drop Rest and I really like that sucker. I actually put one on my personal bow. I like that thing as most of you out there know. Um, I continually try different things in this market and you know there's times where I've tried things where I've thought were awesome and I you know I stand corrected. I make changes just like all of us. Uh, the industry can continually evolves. And uh, I actually had a few things with that rest that I personally would love to talk with them about, about slightly modifying to where it would be something that, uh, that I would love to slightly tweak and stamp my name of approval on. So we'll see if that happens. But uh, this is, that rest really tuned awesome yesterday. And uh, I've had some dynamite aeroflight on several different bows that I set up different model bows, different brand bows, and all with different arrows. And um, there were some things that I really, really liked about it. It seemed super bulletproof. Um, I'm going to move on here to the next question from Jeffrey Biller. He's saying, on your knock to it release, how much pressure is on your thumb while pulling through your shot? Is it even pressure on each finger or most of the pressure on the thumb? And also, how many pounds is um, into the back wall are you into in order to get that shot to break? So there was a couple things here. One, when you talk about the pressure on my fingers. So when I draw that bow back, what's nice about the knock to it release is you're actually the way that release is set up. You're going to find that when you pull it back, almost, you know, two thirds of the weight, um, is going to be on your index finger and about a third of the weight should be on your middle finger as you pull back. And then once you bring your thumb around to that trigger, like I talked about earlier, you have to learn what's called a preload. And the preload is how much pressure you can actually put on the barrel of that trigger without getting it to fire. Once you learn kind of how much preload you should have, you know, you'll kind of get some some uh, skin on that trigger casing and from there you're going to continue having that same type of pressure on your thumb but you're going to pull through with that index finger and I envision sliding that index finger along the bottom edge of my jaw. I also think about the rear tip of my elbow pulling to an object behind me and as you do that, it's going to naturally build and increase the amount of skin pressure you have on that thumb trigger. And then it's going to fire with an unanticipated surprise shot. And that's what you're really looking into. If you're starting to think about how much pressure you need to add on your thumb, then your mind is directly connecting to the sensitivity of that thumb and you're going to start to build anticipation simply because your brain is going to easily start to know how much pressure it can put on that trigger before it fires. Your brain is extremely smart this way when it comes to 
finger touch and finger pressure. So you want to bring that thumb around and then continually pull until it fires. For the amount of pressure it takes, for this particular release, the amount of pressure is fairly minimal. I would say maybe a pound to two pounds over what, you know, increase in pressure. Now with a, a, um, a tension style release, I normally, if I'm starting someone out with a tension style release or I'm kind of working with the tension style release to just pull through my shots, I normally set it higher than what I would personally like to shoot. Like say if I was in a tournament or something where I don't where I'm really focusing on how much movement I have or minimalizing movement, um, I would have it less. And this is something that I work with a lot of students. I actually make their tension activated release to need more pressure than what I really want them to end up on. But I just want them to really learn that sensation of pulling through that shot and really focusing on the movement of coming through the shot more so than what's happening on the front. Then once they start to really master that and they've taken several months at just imprinting that sensation into your brain to where that starts to become a process of the subconscious, that active movement and continual movement, then I'll slowly start to decrease the amount of tension on that release so that they're able to get through that shot sooner with the same type of effort. And what that does is it allows you to minimize your pin movement and slow that front pin movement down just a little bit and also slow your not necessarily slow your pull but you're not having to pull through so hard and with such so much dynamics so that's kind of what i do um, with the thumb release you're definitely going to have less than with a tension activated release but this is really why i'm so adamant about coming out with this other release um, that's going to be available. I don't know when, but I know I'm getting them made. So I want to show you a system. And this is something that even I do myself. I can tell you right now that last week when I was in elk country, I was out shooting and I was actually using my knock to it and I just wasn't shooting as good as what I had what I knew that I could. I was shooting okay, but I also had some some wild arrows, you know, you make three or four good shots and then you have one or two that are just somewhere else or you go and you shoot a group and your whole group is over on one spot or on one, you know, side of the target just out of the bullseye or whatever but the whole group's over there and then all of a sudden the next time you go and you're you know you're able to put three or four or five right in the middle but then you have a few that are kind of over in that area for me i know that i'm not having my equipment move i know it's not my equipment that's changing what i know is that i change it doesn't take much for your body to start doing something slightly different it can be as easy as slight difference in grip pressure. It can be a difference in how you're pulling through that release. And maybe you're coming down off your face or you're coming out away from your face. 
you know, maybe you're not getting in your peep site correctly. Just all those little things all of a sudden makes those groups start to slightly change on the target. And yesterday, um, I set up one of those bows for a buddy of mine. <laughs> and when he came over to shoot it, I had already sighted it in to 60 yards for him. And he actually wanted um, one of my releases. So I gave him a knock to it release. And we were shooting at 20 yards. And he he was grouping, but he was grouping like about four to five inches, maybe six inches under the target at 20 yards, under the spot. And so I told him, I said, hey, are you perfectly aligning your peep in that front scope? And he said, well, yeah, I can see all my pins inside of my peep without a problem. And I said, no. I said, are you perfectly aligning them? In other words, when you look at your front sight, you have a circle. I said, what I'm doing when I sight it in your bow is I focus on the bottom edge of my peep, the bottom concave circle of my peep. I perfectly align with the bottom circle of the housing. Those two have to be perfectly eclipsed. I don't want to see more of your housing. I don't want to see less of your housing to where I'm covering your bubble. I need to be able to see just the exact bottom edge of the housing and the full bottom bubble. I said when those two are perfectly aligned in that way, then I adjust my front bow arm so that my pin is in the center of the target. So he said, okay, I'm going to do that. He literally focused on perfectly aligning that eclipse and then just one after another, every arrow is going right in the middle dot. So it just goes to show you the smallest things can make the biggest of differences. So what I did when I was elk hunting, I knew that my groups weren't tight. I was making some mistakes. I was just kind of not fresh. Obviously, I've been on the road. I'm not able to shoot as much. I kind of get to shoot a little bit when I come back from my hunts. Um, a lot of times it's during the middle of the day when the wind is a little bit more. So what I did was I broke out that silverback and I started shooting. And it was just after about four or five ends, all of a sudden all my groups just started sucking back together. And the reason was because I was focusing on pulling through my shot. I wasn't thinking about all the other bull crap that you can think about. And I can tell you, after I sat there and shot that silverback, I just told myself, I'm like, you know what? Why the heck aren't I shooting this thing for my hunt? You know, I'm I'm shooting this way better right now because it makes me focus on the pull and it's not allowing me to think about the other 45 things you can think about during a shot. It's just having me focus on a good anchor, centering my peep sight, letting off that safety, and just continuing to pull that index finger along in the jaw, focus on the tip of that elbow, going back to something straight behind you, and coming through that shot. All my arrows just sucked together. Never touched anything on my bow, never touched anything on my arrows. It was all me. And so that's why I took that release into the field. And that's why, honestly... Um, I think that these two go hand in hand, and when I show you them together, um, you're gonna you're gonna really appreciate the fact that I built these two casings to match, and your draw length and your peep height will all be the same. Um, the hook positions on both are in the same part of the casing, 
So this is going to be a really, really cool system, and I'm going to develop an actual training, uh, a little training series for you. And, you know, I think people that get these, I'm going to go ahead and give you a private link to to some private training with these. Um, but that's where I stand for uh, finger pressure, trigger pressure, all the above. So thanks, Jeff, for that question. Uh, next question here is from Matt Padilla. And he says, hey, John, I have a question. Do you recommend a lot of helical for hunting arrows? I currently use the Easy Fletch Mini with two-inch veins, but I also have a Bitsenberger. I really like how easy the mini jig works and how much helical it puts on, but I recently saw an article regarding too much helical being bad for long-range hunting shots. Any information uh, could help. So... Here's the thing, man. Yeah, having a lot of helical is good for getting an arrow to spin. If you're a traditional person, if you're shooting a recurve, if you're shooting a real big fixed blade broadhead, in those cases, having a lot of spin can help. And actually, like when I shoot indoors or when a lot of people shoot indoor archery, you see these guys shooting, a lot of people shooting like a four inch feather with a very hard helical on them. And it's because they want to get these bigger shafts that are a little bit more finicky to tune. They're trying to get them to spin faster to stabilize quicker because they're only going 18 meters before they hit the target. So they have to stabilize fast. However, you'll notice that people don't shoot that same setup and I'm talking the best target archers in the world, they're not going to shoot that same setup outdoors at longer distances. Because what happens is the further that arrow goes, when it's spinning at that higher rate of speed, it will slow down faster. And the faster it slows down, when a projectile slows down, it'll start to lose accuracy. So you, there's a fine line there. What is longer distance to you? I can tell you that now that world archery has brought targets to 50 meters instead of back when we were shooting full fetus at 70 and 90 meters, how you set up your arrows and the type of arrows you're shooting and the amount of helical you can put on your veins or the amount of offset, it's changed dramatically compared to when we used to shoot 70 and 90 meters because you're able to get that arrow to spin and correct fast and you're not shooting at a distance to where you're massively starting to reduce speed. You know, I've personally found that somewhere in the mid 40s for distance is where that threshold of a fast spinning arrow versus one that doesn't spin fast, where those two start to separate from themselves and the one really starts to reduce speed at a higher rate. So if you're a whitetail hunter and you're making shots 40 yards or less, Having more offset isn't a bad thing. If you're someone who just really likes to go out and shoot 20, 30, 40 yards, maybe 50 yard shots, that extra helical, that extra offset's going to be good. If you're someone like me, where my main target is at 80 yards and I shoot 90% of my, my arrows at 80 yards, um, then I personally prefer 
less offset because I want an arrow that groups the best at those longer distances. So, you know, I like a bits and burger jig because it gives me the option for offset. I can get a helical clamp if I want and then offset that clamp a little bit. But go with what's best for you. And if you're just the everyday hunter that's just loving to have targets, you know, shooting 20 to 50 yards, then you're going to have a great little setup for that. And if you're trying to shoot a shorter vein with a fixed blade broadhead, then you're going to be just fine with the setup that you have. Um, But if you go somewhere and your buddies are all out shooting at 100 yards, you know, you may not have as accurate of a setup at 100 yards um, as you do up close. But then again, um, you may actually have a slightly better group and bow at a shorter distance than someone who doesn't have enough rotation on the arrow uh, to stabilize something that isn't perfectly tuned. So thanks, Matt. Appreciate that. Uh, next question here is for John, uh, without an H in your name. So I don't know your last name. Uh, quick question. What do you put on your carbon defiant for noise suppression and where do you put it? Um, honestly, I really like I, when I replace my strings and cables. I normally put Winner's Choice strings and cables on all my bows right when I get them. Um, I actually put that little limb saver rubber thing in the cable, the same as they come stock from the factory. Um, from there on most of my bows, I will go ahead and put, I'm putting about five brass knocks on each end of the string, about three inches away from the cam. Um, and then I actually slide on a piece of shrink tubing, heat tubing, and just take a hair dryer and heat that up and shrink that around those brass knocks. And then, um, the other thing too, is a lot of, a lot of people's, Differences in noise with their bow is coming from their string stoppers. Um, some colors in the, a lot of people are making different colors for like rubber stuff on their bows. This is all the companies. Some colors are softer than others. You can feel that. So um, I've actually found that I've got some black ones that just feel way softer than even though a lot of times I accentuate with green. Um, so I keep the black stopper on. The other thing too is I found that there's a fine line between that stopper to where if it has too much pressure on the string, it starts to affect your grouping. If there's not enough pressure on the string, the string will actually buzz on that stopper. So what I do to get that pressure just right is I'll actually loosen this set screw that holds the rubber, uh, the carbon rod that goes to my string stopper or my stealth shot, as they would call it on my Hoyt. Most bows have them, though. Then what I do is I'll tip the bow upside down to where that stealth shot falls down onto the string just with gravity. And from there, once it falls onto the string and it has decent pressure on the string, I'll tighten it down. I don't actually push it onto the string to where it starts to force the string back. In my opinion, that starts to become too much. Um, And I also don't like there to be a little gap there either because the string can actually buzz on that. The other thing you can do too is um, several years ago, I did a segment on how to tie cat whiskers. So what I'll do is um, I'm going to go ahead and post a link on all the, all the, the Knock on TV Facebook page. 
um, the knock on TV Instagram and um, also on the John Dudley athlete page. I'm going to post a link to how to tie your own cat whiskers. This is a really cool technique that I think everyone should know works really good, does a lot of a lot of benefits for dampening your string. And the smaller you make these, the less effect that they have on your speed. Um, and, you know, I like to keep mine maybe about one inch long is all. Um, I just call them beaver balls instead of string silencers or cat whiskers because they kind of look like two beaver nuts. Um, but they work really good. And the other thing is if you take some moleskin, um, I, a lot of times I'll take moleskin or uh, f- that f- stick-on felt and I'll cut it in a circle to match the uh, my stealth shot that touches my string and I'll stick it right onto that rubber thing to where you've got that, that fleece or that felt on there. Makes a huge difference. Uh, really, really helps silence everything up. Um, from there, I still, I still use a... Um, kind of a rubber doinker type device on my stabilizer as well. Um, a lot of the new stabilizers just stack weights. Uh, I just personally think that's kind of a waste. I like a stabilizer to have weight, but I also like it to dampen. And it dampens by having rubber that flexes and allows the energy to go out the end of the stabilizer. Um, so I actually have the old fuse rubbers that are tapered. You can get them on some of the stabilizers. I actually buy those separate and uh, put those on the end of my new stabilizers. I might post some pictures of those uh, for you guys as well just to see what I'm using. But kind of a combination of all that stuff uh, makes it just quietly quiet. Other than that, a heavy arrow. You know, having a decent weight arrow means a ton when it comes to noise on your bow so hopefully all that works for you guys appreciate these questions Uh, i got another podcast here um, that hopefully you guys are enjoying or did enjoy appreciate everything and uh you know good luck if you whack something good uh, make sure you tag hashtag knock on or hashtag knock on nation let's see it Uh, Appreciate all you out there and good luck to all my target archers and look forward to new bows and whitetail rut and indoor season coming up here over these next months. Thanks everybody. Be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock-on lifestyle clothing. knockonarchery.com